Amen. You can have a seat. I'm going to grab my water. Take your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. I'm not doing a magic trick, I promise. I just forgot my water over there. Genesis 22. While you're turning there, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, Stephanie and I um, met in college. Uh, we were, uh, we dated, we were, we were on the fast plan, we dated for nine months, and then we're engaged for nine months, and then we were married. Uh, in that um, dating period, we had a lot of times to be in the car, so we would travel a lot. We went to college in northern Wisconsin, so we would drive to uh, southeastern Pennsylvania or Massachusetts, which was a good 18-plus hour drive, and so we would make that drive regularly, so we got lots of quality time together in the car. Um, there was one particular time, and I don't remember what the situation was, we were going back somewhere, and, and we were stopped at a stoplight, and we were just kind of having a conversation, and I, and I looked at her very clearly and said, do you trust me? It's a pretty good question to ask, right? I thought so. And she was like, well, yeah. I was like, no, 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 no. Do you trust me? It's important you tell me right now. Do you trust me? A little animated little drama. I know it surprises you. I'm good at that. She was like, yes. Yes. I said, okay. Open your door when I tell you to open the door. She said, what? I said, open the door when I tell you to say the door. Okay, ready? Ready? Open your door. And she reached over to open the door. And I was, I was like shocked. Like, don't open the door. She goes, why? And at that moment, <laughs> I had been watching in my rearview mirror, a bicyclist coming up the inside. So I thought it'd be funny. I didn't think she would do it. Now, on this side of it, it's funny, she didn't do it, but she would have. Makes me feel special. She would have. <laughs> That's kind of our story, but in a much more meaningful way in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. We get to see out of Abraham come realization of what kind of faith was there, what he would do for God. And we get to enjoy that very familiar story this morning. So I'm going to read and preach at the same time as we kind of walk through it, and then we'll, um, at the, the, the end of it, I want to go back and make a, a very specific point. So Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says this, uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, now hold on, just remember, the name Abraham means father of a multitude. Father of a multitude who only has one son, but his name means a father of a great many. Abraham? And Abraham answered, here I am. And God continued, take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I, I really do prefer the New American Standards translation of that, that, that beginning there, verse 2. I think it captures both the literal nature of what's being said in the original Hebrew as well as communicates what it's trying to say. There is a building of intensity as God is speaking to Abraham. There is this building of, of, um, of feeling as God walks through and just names who this young man is. This, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. And with each reference to that young man, 
there is yet again another heartstring that is pulled. Take your son, your son, the one that you didn't have and waited for 25 years after I came to you and said you would have a, a multitude of generations that flow from you and that would have to come through the gift of a son. So, so take that son, your only son. Now in God's mind, in God's economy, the way God kept score, Isaac was his only son. But, but even further than that, Abraham had just sent Ishmael away. So take your son, your only son. You have nobody left. It's just him. The one you love. Isaac. Remember, his name means laughter. You remember in chapter 21, the beginning after Isaac is born, Sarah says, God has made me to laugh. And everybody who hears is going to, to laugh with me. Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who, who would have thought that this was possible? Who would have imagined that God himself would have brought life from a place where there was no life? <laughs> Isaac. That son. God says, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains that I will tell you about, and I want you to offer your son there. How could God do that? How, how could God do that? You hear what he's asking. It, there's, there's no tricks or, or things that you can read into the text that make it seem less intense or less literal. You know exactly what it is that God is asking him to sacrifice his son, to offer his son. How could God do that? Just in case you're wondering, I want to make sure you hear my actual answer before I go any further. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Abraham, you, you read and hear the story from Abraham's perspective. What he's hearing from God is, is what I want you to do is I want, to take, I want you to take this young man, this, this one son that you have who, who is going to carry on your family name, who the generations are going to come from him, the land that you're going to inherit. It's going to go through him. I want you to, 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 to take that boy and I want you to sacrifice him, much like many of the pagan practices in the area were doing at the day. I want you to, to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable. I mean, you, you could actually look at this and hear God tell Abraham, I want you to give me your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. You could almost hear Abraham's thought process like, God is behaving like my enemy in this moment. Trying to take my Son, my only son, the one I love, Isaac. Now, you and I have a unique privilege and perspective on the story because we know the end of it. Abraham didn't. And yet what we get to see is how Abraham reacted to God's call in his life to sacrifice his son. And verse 3 says this, it's, it says, So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to this place that God had told him about. It says Abraham got up early in the morning. It's a Hebrew idiom that means urgently, immediately, without pause, 
without reservation. Abraham got up early in the morning, got his stuff together, got his son, got his servants, and started on the journey, which begs a very significant question that I also don't have the answer for. What about Sarah? What about mom? I think this would, might be one of those situations in Scripture where dad said to son, let's not tell mom about this one. Let's keep this between us. It should probably be better that way. I, I, I don't know. I, I just know Abraham's response was instant and unwavering in his obedience. There's no record in here of him complaining. There's no record in here of him arguing with God. There's just immediate response to God's call. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife. The two of them walked on together. Get three days into this journey. Three days of walking towards what is your greatest nightmare. Three days to think as you walk. Three days to chew on what it is that God's calling you to do. Three days to mull over in your mind, God really wants me to do this. Time comes, and Abraham doesn't shrink back at all. Now, we're going to come back to that. Um, so let's just keep moving for now. Let me, let me, let me say this here. I meant to say it at the beginning. It didn't. Um, so I, I do want to kind of walk through the story here and make some applications here and make a, a bigger application. But then... I believe that God's laid on my heart exactly what it is that is meant for us today in this moment. Now, when you hear that, you're like, well, how arrogant. I don't, I don't mean just, I don't mean I've got God's will figured out for all of you. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is that God has been whooping me, and so I'm just going to share it with you. And uh, I'm going to count on the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to work in each of our hearts and point us towards the message that we need this morning out of this passage, okay? So I'm going to come back to what I believe is the main point for us. Maybe not the main, but the main point for us today in just a few minutes. But, but for now, let's, let's go to verse 7. It says, Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham. He said, my father. And Abraham replied, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? So Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. For a moment, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. As you're walking now towards the mountain, you know where your destination is now. You're walking towards that mountain. You have left your servants behind, but you are walking towards this destination. And you, are, you, you have your son with you, and you know God has called you to sacrifice your son. And you're, you're still chewing on this. You're still wrestling with this. And then your son says to you, Dad, we're, we forgot something. Where's the offering? 
again, perspective. Abraham knows where the offering is. But we get a little hint into what's happening in Abraham's life when he says God himself will provide the lamb. So, so, so how? How? How does Abraham get to that point? How does he carry on? How does he continue in that journey towards that mountain? How does he do that at all? I think for two reasons. We talked about one of them last week. Um, I think the first reason that Abraham is able to, to carry on and continue in this journey is because Abraham's had a profound life change. And I think that profound life change came in Abraham's heart in that instant, in that moment, when Abimelech, the king of Gerar, came to him and said, Abraham, God said that you would pray for me so that I would live. Now, I don't want to re-preach last week's message, but if you remember what happened last week, Abraham and Sarah come into Gerar, Abraham's freaking out that they're going to kill him and take his wife, and so Abraham says, Sarah, just lie and tell them you're my sister so they won't kill me. So the king of Gerar says, that one, I want that one, and Abraham says, good, because she's my sister. And the king of Gerar takes Sarah into his harem, and then immediately, judgment of God falls on the king Abimelech. It falls on the rest of the, the, the kingdom. And, and God appears to Abimelech in this dream and says to him, listen, you are a dead man. You have taken another man's wife. You will not live unless you return her. And you go to Abraham and ask him to pray for you. And if you ask my prophet Abraham to pray for you, then you will live. And so now what happens is Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, okay, listen, you are a horrible human being, first of all, Abraham. Why would you do this? Well, I don't understand. And then he gives all this stuff to Sarah. And then he says, uh, Abraham, God said that as his prophet, you would pray for me so I would live. So would you do that? As I pointed out last week, what an awkward prayer. I mean, what's happening is Abraham is praying, God, would you show mercy to Abimelech? Would you show grace to Abimelech? Would you, would you forgive him of, of whatever, would you remove the judgment? Would you lift the judgment from him? Would you let him live? Because everything he's going through is a result of me. And I, and I think that in that moment as Abraham was praying for Abimelech, he was praying for the grace and mercy of God and peace of God and, and life of God to pour out on Abimelech and he realized those were the very things that God had given to him as well. And I think from that point on, and we see it here, that point on there was a profound life change in Abraham. I think what happened was as Abraham was praying for Abimelech, he, had a, he came across this better understanding, this better personal knowledge of who God was. He had heard the stories of God. He had interacted with God and failed many times. But in this moment, it became real to him. The grace, mercy, peace, power, love of God became abundantly real to him. So let me encourage you. You want the faith of Abraham to continue on that journey with your son. You want that faith then know God. And, and not by um, 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 what everybody else tells you about God. No, no. Know God by, by getting into the written revelation of who God is in his word. I'm telling you, getting to know God doesn't just happen by, I, I know, I know. Our chairs are particularly comfortable here. But getting to know God doesn't come just by you sitting in the soft chair and be like, oh, there he is, I see him. No, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes energy. Get to know God. Get in his word. Read it. Study it. Meditate it. Well, I, I don't know what meditating on it is. Well, yes, you do. It means chew on it over and over and over again. Consume it. Ingest it. Mull over it. Ask questions of it. Be surprised by it. I would even say be angry. 
There should be times when you are studying the word of God that you get angry. Here's a couple of reasons, but here's one in particular. When you crack open God's word and you read something and you come across this understanding of who God is, a characteristic, an attribute of who God is that you were never taught, oh, that should make you mad. Because that means up to that point you weren't living in full understanding of who God was. Somebody stole that from you. Be amazed by it. It takes work. If you want the faith of Abraham, then let me encourage you to get to know God. I think we think we can get to know God by attending a weekly service. We can get to know God by listening to a podcast or two. We can get to know God by singing Christian songs every once and again. We can get to know God by forcing our children to go to a children's program or a teen program. Knock it off. Do the work. Get in the Word. But I think the second reason that Abraham was able to continue on this journey, well, we get a little insight in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, starting verse 17, talks about Abraham in this moment. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He said, this is, this is it. This, Abraham is doing this thing, exactly what we're talking about. All the promises made through Isaac, and yet God says, give Isaac. Okay, how do these two things go together? So, so, so what happens? Well, the author of Hebrews continues. Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, Therefore, Abraham received Isaac back, figuratively speaking. What, what, what the author of Hebrews says is, as, and maybe it was during that three-day journey, I don't know, as Abraham was wrestling, the, the promises say this, God has promised me this, he has promised me this, and now God tells me to, to give the son who's going to achieve all of those promises. I don't see how those go together. I'm supposed to kill him, and yet I still get the promises. Said, oh, wait, I kill him. God raises him from the dead, then we get the promises. And that, that's the, the thought process that we, we, we get read into as we try to understand Abraham's mindset. And so because of those things, Abraham was able to walk on. The, the, most of Genesis kind of goes through in hyperspeed. Like the uh, last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17, that's one verse there. That's 13 years of history happened between those two verses. But then you, you get here, <laughs> and everything seems to hit slow motion. Look at, look at verse 9. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there, and he arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac, placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. How? You don't get a record of him looking to the left or right or looking around to see if he could figure out a way out. We have, we have no, 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 no record of him challenging God in heaven, no record of him arguing with God. What we have a record of Abraham doing in this most intense moment is 
drawing the knife. We're not told how much time elapses there. We're not told, I don't know, I, I think I go back and forth. I think earlier I said, you know, I, if it was me, I would just take my time, I'd get the knife, take the, slowly saunter over. But, but I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it'd be like, I just need to get this done. I, I, don't, I don't know what the mindset is. I just know that there is no question that Abraham was still running through it in his mind because of the way he responds here. Look at verse 11. So, so Abraham had grabbed, reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham replied, here I am. Now, I find it interesting. Abraham has responded to his name being spoken three different times in this story. Each time he has said, here I am. I think this last one was probably said with a little bit more enthusiasm than all the rest. I think in this moment, suddenly it was like, okay, I'm here, I'm here, what, what, what next? And so then God continues, verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, don't do anything to him, for now I know you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. I know that you fear God. I know, Abraham, that you were willing to give to me what is most precious to you, because I asked you to, and because you have a healthy fear of God. So there's a tension that true worshipers of God must live in. And that's the tension called the fear of God. There's that tension. And I've used this before, but for me, anyway, it's the clearest picture of it. It's getting to the edge of the cliff just because you want to be as close as you can just to take it all in, right? And you just feel it. You can feel it in your stomach. And then you remember you're afraid of heights. And it's like, nope, I don't want any part of that. But I do, but I don't. I, that's the tension that is the fear of God. The tension that is the fear of God is he, is he is holy. And there is no sin that can dwell in his presence. Not because sin is his kryptonite that weakens him. But if I come into his presence and there is sin involved in his holiness, he will eviscerate it. That's terrifying. I'm going to stay back here. And yet, in his holiness, in his majesty, in his power, in his glory, in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, I want to, I want to get in. Yeah, there's the terror. So the problem is that many of us try to remove that tension. Many of us are like, no, God is just all wonderful and glory. I'm going to give him a big warm hug. Or, God is so transcendent that he must, I must not. Uh, you cannot remove the tension. A true worshiper of God lives within that tension. And that tension is, is real. It, it shows that you know who God is, and so you want to draw as close to him as you can. But it also shows you know who you are, so you're rightly terrified. That's the tension each and every single one of us as a true worshiper of God must exist in. Let me continue. Verse 13. It says, Abraham looked up and he, and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its, thorn, its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram. He offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. I want to make a real quick um, biblical theology application point here before I jump to what I believe is the main point for the day. Um, for centuries, historical Christianity, church history, 
I just got a piece of styrofoam from my cup. That was great. Yummy. <laughs> um, but for, for centuries, all these years, looking back, right? Churches, Christians, have read this very familiar story, and it's become their habit or their, their custom to, to read this and hear certain things. So Isaac, the only son of Abraham, placed on the altar by his father to be sacrificed. What happens is we hear those things and our mind races, and and it should to a degree, races ahead to to Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, sent as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And what happens is they read the story, and they say, Isaac is a picture of Jesus. There's problems with that. Isaac wasn't sacrificed. Jesus was. Isaac didn't die here. Isaac didn't offer his life as a substitute for others, dying in their place. Now, we do see a type of Jesus in this story, but it's not Isaac. It's the thing that's stuck in the thicket over here. It's the ram. It's the ram that God provided at just the right moment to be a substitutionary sacrifice on the altar so that Isaac could go free. So as you read this story, what I want all of you to remember is a typology as that goes and how it's a a picture of Jesus. I want you to understand that in this story, you are Isaac. You are Isaac nearing death at any moment. But a substitute came and died in your place. That substitute's name is Jesus Christ. That's why we, like Abraham and Isaac, can really call and refer to God as he's referred to here as the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. The God who, in fact, provides. So can you, can you see what God's done for you? Can can you understand that you as a sinner on the edge of death have had your name called by God and told there's a substitute for you? And on that day, there was a sacrifice that was made, and Isaac went free. Then outside of Jerusalem on a hill, there was another sacrifice that was made. It was Jesus Christ, so that you and I could go free. Now, I want to jump back to verse 5 as we close here in the next couple minutes. We see Abraham's words when, when he's getting ready to continue his journey. He looks at his young servants and he says, you guys stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. And then we'll come back to you. We are going to go worship. What's he being called to do again? Sacrifice his son. And yet Abraham, as he considers it, says to those around him, I'm going to worship. And he's defining worship appropriately. So are you worshiping? Now let me, let me, let me just kind of jump into this just a little bit. We need to be careful when we define worship not to oversimplify it. We, we tend to define worship um, as praise. Now, praise is a piece of worship. Praise is what we do in here on Sunday mornings. That, it's, it's, that's part of what we do. But, but praise is not 
worship in its entirety. So throughout the Bible, uh, there are commands to praise the Lord. This is a little rabbit trail, but not too bad. This is the one that God smacked me around with this week. So again, I'll share. Um, we're, we're commanded to praise the Lord. Now, when we're commanded to praise the Lord, nowhere in Scripture does it speak of praise the Lord with this style. Praise the Lord with, with, with this um, particular song. Praise the Lord at this volume. Praise the Lord with these preferences. It never says any of those things in there. What it says is, you are commanded. Praise the Lord with singing, with shouting, with instruments, with clapping, with raising hands, with dancing. I mean, I could keep going. I'll just leave it to those six for now. We are commanded to praise the Lord with those things. So let me read these, this list again, and I want you to consider which ones have you done or do you do regularly, and which ones you're like, nope, here we go. Praise the Lord with singing, shouting, instruments, clapping, Raising hands, dancing. <laughs> I like the shouting one. I do that a lot. I dance, sort of. When I sing, I do this a lot. That's dancing, right? Do you know what? As I listen to this and read this, it's like God has commanded me to do these things. I raise my hands in the car. Why? Why am I uncomfortable raising my hands in worship here at my home church with my church family? Why am I uncomfortable with that? Oh, because it's about me. So let me ask you, which one or two or three are you not doing? And recognize this, God has commanded you to do them. And if you are not doing them, that means it is sin. So I expect all of you to be raising your hands. I'm just kidding. That's not. So praise. Praise is an expression of gratefulness and appreciation for what God has done for us. It's us giving thanks to him. Praise is also a way of speaking truth over the lives of other people. So as I thank God for what he's done, I'm singing that here in this room, and I'm singing it over you. I'm singing it to you. And there's a lot of arguments about this, but if you read 1 Corinthians 14, you'll find there's three audiences of worship. I'm singing to God, I'm singing to other believers, and I'm singing in such a way that unbelievers will take note and go, wow, what a God. The problem is, is that we look at that and say, that's my worship. No, 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 no. I would argue praise is easy. Worship is not. Because worship, rightly understood, must go beyond Sunday morning. Worship takes uh, an entire aspect of who I am. Every piece of me, every part of me must be involved in worship. I must be willing to humble myself before God. I must be willing to surrender every part of my life to his control. Not, not just a, as an occasional thing. Not just a momentary thing. Not just a every Sunday kind of thing. In worship, what I do is I yield myself as a lifestyle to God. Now, I'll be honest with you, there are four million definitions of worship out there. Every theologian has a definition of worship. Some of them are like me, who they still can't get it right, so they just keep redefining it. So I did that again, so I'm up to like number four, I think. I don't know. But let me, let me define worship this way for us this morning. Worship is the intentional, ongoing, glad sacrifice of all that we've been given into the hands of the one who gave it to us to begin with. 
As you look at the story of Abraham sacrificing or being willing to sacrifice and offer Isaac, what you find is worship is the intentional, ongoing, glad sacrifice of all that we've been given into the hands of the one who gave it to us to begin with. So, so just for a moment, what has God given you? Think about that in your head for a minute. What has God given to you? Why has he given it to you? See, when we worship, it always involves us giving back to God what he first gave to us. Else I'd have nothing to give him. So, so part of my worship is generosity with finances. I, if God never gave me any finances, I could never give it back to him. But he has, so I do. Part, part of worship is, is giving back to what God has already given to you. In our story, it's Isaac. Abraham had to get to the place. God gave him Isaac, and now Isaac is being given back. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your job. Maybe, maybe it's your time. I don't, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is that God has given to you, he's asking for it back. Ah, man, ah, no, I don't like that. Okay, you don't have to do it then. <laughs> worship is always costly. It's another thing we find in this story. Always costly. It's never convenient. Never. We, 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 we do not worship him because it's convenient and we receive a benefit. I worship him because he is going to do some amazing things for me. You know what that says? That betrays you. It shows who you're truly worshiping. Yourself. No, 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 no. We, we, we worship him not because of the amazing things he's going to do. If that was true, okay, ask yourself the question. Okay, if that's true, what amazing thing was Abraham getting out of sacrificing his son? You know what he was getting? A dead kid. It's costly. We worship him not because it's easy or convenient. We worship him because we know who we are. And we're getting to know who he is. That's the story of Job. We get to the end of the book of Job, and God says, all right, listen, Job, you have been complaining long enough. It's time. Who do you think you are? Where were you when I spoke all this into to being? Where were you when, when, when the tornado comes? Where are you? You know how tornadoes work? You know how that works? Okay. Where were you? You can't even figure out when the pop-up thunderstorm is going to happen, like happened this morning at like 8 o'clock here. You can't you use your little thing, okay? The radar says blah on your radar. It wasn't there, and it was pouring out. Who do you think you are? No, 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 no. All of that is in my hand, not yours. God has called us to be worshiping like that. So let me challenge you with something real quick. If God has, in fact, called all of us to worship him, by bringing him our Isaacs. What's your Isaac? That's where, you, that's where one of your kids should be like, Elby, and you're like, it's me, mom, it's me. And you know what? A lot of times it is. It's this gift that's too precious for me to separate or part from. Yet God says, no, 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 no. I gave you that kid. Will you give him back? Maybe Isaac is your job. 
Maybe your Isaac is a relationship. I'll tell you what I think the most prevalent Isaac of our day is right now. In 2021, because of the events of the last year and a half. I think the most prevalent Isaac of our day is our time. Suddenly we were gifted in a weird sort of way with this abundance of time that we're not used to, that we don't know what to do. So all of these sacrifices we were making with our time to serve other people, to serve our other people, is now that's all wiped out. They don't need that anymore. So now I have the time back, and now all of a sudden it's this fresh start, and you're like, yeah, well, we'll see who gets what. And guys, please hear this. This is a heart of I love you. I'm not coming at you. This is true in every church in the country right now. That is why volunteerism is at an all-time low in churches. That is why in our children's ministry, our children's volunteers have dropped 75% over the last year and a half. So let me, let me challenge you with the words of Paul, brothers and sisters. In view of the mercies of God, not in view of what you like, not in view of what's convenient, not in view of your preferences, not in view of what makes much of you, but in view of the mercies of God. How God has mercied you, how God has rescued you, how God did not give you what you deserve and you should be thankful for it. In view of those mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. Because that's what true worship is. What's your Isaac? Is he worthy of you giving that to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for the gift that you have given to me in being loved so well by these people. Now, Lord, I ask that you would, that you would do a work in all of our hearts, not just theirs. <laughs> God, there is no question in my own heart, my own life, that I'm holding back on you. There's things that I need to yield back to you. Things that, things that you've given to me. Father, may I practice what I preach most literally. I pray for our church family. I pray that as we evaluate what our Isaacs might be. Father, we would celebrate the gifts that you've given to us. We would celebrate the opportunity to worship you even more than the gifts. May our worship be pleasing in your sight. May our, our gifts be acceptable. May our generosity as we seek to serve you put a smile on your face. We love you. We thank you for Christ. Amen.